Hello, everybody. My name is Mike, and we are live with the State of Mind podcast at Radio Regent Park. And today, I am blessed with the presence of a wonderful guest, David Zarnett, or Dr. David Zarnett, or Professor David Zarnett. No, not the latter. Just Dave. Just Dave. Dave. Okay, so it's Dave. And this is awesome. It's nice that we're getting a variety of guests with different, uh, I guess, professional, personal backgrounds. And today we're going to talk about a little bit about mental health on university campuses. Um, Today you will speak about U of T, University of Toronto. We'll talk about David's dog training uh, business and what he's learning through that and how that relates to human psychology and mental health. We will talk about the charity that he is an executive director of. It's called Every Kid Counts, and they work to bring more resources to kids living with disabilities. And uh, I guess David's own personal or, you know, what's happened to him through friends, family, or et cetera, around mental health and well-being. So, David, can you please say hello and introduce yourself? Yeah, no, I was... I, I... You know, when you asked me to to come on, I was like, things can't be going well for you. Um, so <laughs> I guess the first question I'd ask you before you pepper me with questions is, yes. give, give me an update if starts with me. Why am I here? Yeah, if, you know, if you know what I mean. Sure. I think you're right. I'm on a downward spiral. <laughs> um, and there's some competition out there that I've got to keep, keep up with. Um, no, thanks for asking. But uh, no, things are great. We are in the process of a uh, partnership agreement with a youth basketball foundation um, to basically run mental health programming for them all year, uh, for the kids in the programs, for the parents, and for the staff. So that is pretty exciting, and those are wonderful things that happen throughout the process. But anyhow, I appreciate you deflecting the attention, <laughs> but uh, back to you. So. Where do you want to start? Uh, let, how about personally? Maybe friends mm-hmm. or family or when you were younger or whatever. What's your uh, connection to all of this? So I don't have a, a personal connection with mental illness. So I think about that. That's like the difference between mental health and mental illness. I think I've, of course, experienced suboptimal mental health, yeah. uh, being stressed out, doing a, you know, doing a PhD and writing a dissertation and feel, feeling like it's total crap, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> or teaching and being like I'm a horrible teacher, or raising my dogs um, in a way that I think is, is right and either questioning it or struggling. So there's days when, you know, you know, we all go through that where we're just not feeling the way we should feel. But mental illness, no. I've, I've been very, I guess, fortunate in that sense. But when I when I was thinking about your question, you know, you sent me these, I guess, what, last week. I was thinking about, like, what was the start for me to thinking about, you know, these bigger questions about how to live, what what does it mean to be powerful and, and genuine and authentic? And I guess a few years ago, maybe now it's a decade, maybe not that, uh, or not close to that, or, you know, in that, in that range, um, a friend of mine's brother committed suicide, and... I was too young to really process what it what suicide meant, what are the causes of it. I didn't I didn't really know, but I remember having a lot of conversations with my friend, really close with him, about like what the hell was what what was this? What what, how, what was your relationship like with your brother? 
How do you feel about it? And I always feel strange saying this, but I enjoyed the conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike, maybe you can you can shed light on what that feeling is because I don't always know why I enjoyed it. Um, but I felt like, as opposed to talking about sports or like the Raptors or even politics, um, this these conversations felt really genuine and, and raw and real and you're processing or trying to process really important stuff that we all experience whether in a conscious or subconscious way um i think that was the start for me thinking like oh i i actually like to think about these larger questions of of, of mental illness and mental health um and i and a lot of that plays out now so in my role as an undergrad advisor at at u of t in the department of political science I feel like I'm always having these types of conversations with students about um, where they're at emotionally, how they're feeling, what they're struggling with, as opposed to just sort of the technical aspects of how to apply to grad school or how do I do better on this paper. It's deeper stuff. So I think that with my that that experience with my friend was was a big turning point. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And you asked. So there's two things. There was one. Why is it that we enjoy these deeper conversations? I think certainly a big one is because we don't have them very often, um, which is unfortunate. But I think it's why there is this explosion, I guess, for lack of a better word, of these conversations happening all over the place. And... You also mentioned how you often would explore the deeper meaning of life or how to live with purpose and et cetera. So I think having real conversations about death uh, of a sibling or, you know, in in your case of a good friend sibling, those are as deep and personal as it can possibly get. And so if we, I think that's a huge cause of the problems these days is that those deeper conversations around what does it mean to be a human? What are we, what the hell are we doing here? You know, all those kind of things. Those conversations are not happening. And I think many people are aware they're missing something. A lot of people aren't, but it's clear that there's some sort of deeper void that's not being fulfilled uh, currently. And I think that's actually probably a big reason for a lot of the mental health problems we're seeing um, on campus or elsewhere. Although that's probably up for debate or it's also very complicated as well. And then um, I forgot the other thing that you mentioned after talking about your, the experience with your friend. So there was actually, um, yeah, there was one point. I, I maybe I can just jump in quickly. Yeah. There, in reflecting on that time, talking about um, suicide, I think a lot of the enjoyment may have also come from. So the the thing that my brain wants to tell me is, oh, because this was I like this because it was really real and meaningful. The other part of my, you know, the maybe the reality is there's a bit of like ego and savior complex. Uh, going on here, right? And I, and I wonder, you know, in your experience working with therapists, I wonder what motivates the therapist because sometimes it could be truly altruistic and about um, finding that deeper meaning. But a lot of it, uh, giving advice often feels good, yeah. And it's not always coming from the right place, even if the advice is good. Um, so I I sometimes think like you know the you know the work I, I what I do with students or what I try to 
you know, I, I try to do my best with shelter dogs. Is this me just playing out some type of like savior thing in, in my, <laughs> right. and I, and I, I, you know, and I need to be careful of that because once you become a savior, then you're walking around with a lot of judgment. Um, and God knows I've struggled with that when I see the way other people raise their dogs for whatever reason it is triggering for me. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and I know we, we can talk a bit more about that later, but I think like I, in, in reflecting on those experiences with my friend, I think there's like two narratives. It's one like, oh, this is really like real and raw. And the other is I just like giving advice and maybe this just makes me feel good and feeds the ego. Right. Um, well, I think, so I would say from my understanding, one, so I, I've been really fortunate with at least my own therapy, so to speak, or the people that I've gotten support from. Although in the beginning, there was one in particular that was not helpful. Mm -hmm. And so it was clear that that person wasn't in it for the right reasons. And so that ended quickly. But for whatever reason, it didn't bother me. I mean, it did a little bit, but I just wasn't so desperate that I was like, okay, this isn't working. I'll find someone else Mm -hmm. or do something else. Um, So as a receiver of guidance or advice... I think it's probably mostly subconscious, but you are aware when people are full of air, basically, especially kids, actually, because kids don't or kids read the world through their sensations and emotions much more than their intellect. So when kids are getting lectured or some teachers going on some moral moral rant about how they're bad or they need to be better or if they're not better then this is going to happen and that's going to happen and they're never going to be this and they're never going to be that um it comes across insincere mm-hmm. so you could mm-hmm. say things like that to somebody but it would come across deeply sincere and that's actually part of a lot of the things that we teach when we're in schools or the workplace or wherever we are um is how for one when, as you're saying is it Am I doing this because it actually is deep and meaningful? Am I doing this because it's feeding a sense of I'm a savior and it's feeding my ego? Or maybe is it somewhere in between? But the the important practice is learning to become aware when it's one or the other. Um, And I think over time with sustained attention and discipline, if you will, you, we can train our, our sort of minds and bodies and spirits or souls to act out of that place of sincerity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that takes a lot of practice, and it's not always the case. Um, and so, yeah, it's weird. There is a lot of that. I make myself feel better by convincing myself that I'm helping somebody else mm-hmm. because that um, – I guess, reduces or maybe prevents me from looking at my own problems. And I've been, like, I'm doing my master's right now in counseling psych, and sometimes some of the students, so we get to read everybody's responses to a lot of the assignments, and sometimes it's clear what people's motives are in some respect. And so I do often see someone say, so there was just a post the other day, it was, um, the teacher was describing a scenario in one of his counseling sessions. He just called called them out a little bit. Uh, their counseling sessions where he said, <laughs> where, where basically 
he expressed an emotion on his face when the client told him something. And then the client said, oh, why are you doing that? And sort of jumped on him. And so we were talking about, you know, how do you interact with the client so that that stuff doesn't happen or is reduced? And so one of the students responded by saying, oh, yeah, this could lead to a lot of dropout and lost clients in your practice, which is bad for business, so to speak, right? But that's, in some sense, that's maybe not the ideal orientation, right? Rather than saying something along the lines of, you know, oh, that, well, he did in in his credit acknowledge that that might be an opportunity to investigate why the client had that reaction and et cetera. But at the same time, it ideally, if our perspective is, how can I be of maximum service to this person? And so, oh, I'm sorry that I did that and it came across that way. It wasn't my intention, but what you said made me uncomfortable and sad. So that's why I reacted that way. And let's work with that and I'm a sorry. Rather than, oh, I'm going to lose business because of my poor interaction with the client. So anyhow, that's my long-winded answer to that. And I, and I, I guess it's always important um, to reflect on our motivations. Definitely. Um, I find that the brilliance of just, again, I'm going to be talking about dogs. I mean, everything I really think about, I feel like 90% of my worldview is now through <laughs> what these dogs have taught me. They're so brutally honest that if I, if I'm coming in with a savior complex thinking, Hey guys, look how great I am. I saved you from the shelter or whatever. They're like, F you. No, we're not into this. This is not the type of energy we want because it's full of ego and it's not wow. real. Yeah. Um, hmm. if, so I sometimes need to think about, well, what am I, what are my intentions? What are my motivate? Why am I, why did I just take on this third dog who had killed two other small dogs? What am I actually doing? Um, and what are you actually doing? <laughs> you know, I, that's, a, that's, that's for my own podcast. I'm going to start my yeah, own podcast. Okay, no, good. You no, should. No, I'm just kidding. You should. Um, no, but what am I actually doing? I, is that a, a real Yeah, a real sure. Question? Why not? Let's do it. Yeah, what, why? Um, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that, but I can, I can give you a bit of maybe a, a, a chronology sure. as to what happened and it. you can tell me what I'm doing. <laughs> is that possible? I'll try. Okay. Okay. Um, so I had this horrible, this is year, this is maybe what, 2011. I've had this really tough breakup. Um, and, um, this, this particular woman was always on me to volunteer. And I, at the time, I had just started the PhD, and I was, like, studying activism. I was like, oh, these, you know, act-. but I was never an activist. And I never really did anything. I just judged and studied and analyzed and thought I was so great and so mm-hmm. smart, right? All that BS. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I, I started volunteering at the North Arc Harvest Food Bank, but I have a deathly, I'm, I'm deathly allergic to peanuts. So I couldn't really do what I wanted to do there. Um, and so uh, a friend mentioned, hey, there's a volunteer orientation session at the Toronto Humane Society. I went um, and I started volunteering there to, to walk pretty much walk shelter dogs, walk the dogs there. Within the first few weeks, I was bit. Wow. Um, how does or, that happen? How does that happen in a in a shelter? Like, so how you, do you get bit? So you're you're taking the all the. I mean, so you know, all these dogs are riddled with anxiety, mm-hmm. just by not necessarily who they are, just by their environment and. You know, I think the humane. I think the the Toronto Humane Society is well intentioned, but often good intentions. What's the saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, and I think that's the reality for many of those dogs. Um, 
So I was with this in this case. I was just walking one of the dogs out, and I remember. I actually really remember it vividly. I remember a few things at the time. Uh, if a dog had kennel cough, you had to wear this like nursing gown. What's kennel cough? Kennel cough is like a, uh, like some type of like cold that okay. dogs get, and it's contagious. So you got to be careful. So you wear this gown to if they jump on you, it's not going to transfer to the other dogs. Oh wow! So you're wearing this. I remember in this area, the Toronto Humane Society is around here. Yeah, um, you know. Is, so yeah. I find that really interesting. Um, so. I mean, I'd be walking down Queen Street or around Regent Park with this gown and, yeah. this, you know, a badass, like, <laughs> Rottweiler. Like, this is cool. Like, I'm, you know, I'm doing good things. Right. Um, but I was a bit, uh, I didn't know what, what to do. I was, you know, I was coming in also with ego thinking, well, I had a dog, therefore I know what to do with dogs. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. I had no idea. And the people around me, at the time, I was surrounded by a few volunteers, maybe five or six. And when you were bit, when I was bit, right, they yeah. have it was like on pro- it was on the property, right? Um, and they had no idea what to do. And you know, I'm a, I'm born in February. I'm an Aquarius. I hate mediocrity, and I <laughs> and I don't want to follow crowds. Right. So it's like I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like them. And I'm not sure that's like necessarily a good place to come from but that was right that's how i felt in that moment i started bugging wow. the staff at the toronto humane society to train me and they you know over time i had to be very persistent because they don't have a ton of resources and that's fair um they put me in touch with this brilliant uh woman she's now my teacher close friend mentor uh suha Ezedin, uh, a, 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 also a professor at york wow, and cool. she she taught me she was like you know there was no when I met with her first. I always joke with her about this. There was no pleasantries. It was like, all right, go get the <laughs> shittiest dog. Yeah, I don't know if I can swear on this actually. Oh yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, but keep it to a minimum. Yeah. Um, go get the worst worst dog. dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go get the worst dog, um, and I'll teach you how to do this properly. Wow. Um, and that started like a long. And what did she? Was she the director of the no? Humane she was Society just a, a volunteer, like a, like a a badass volunteer okay. who was just really. Who the staff really respected. They knew right. that, you know, she's she's serious. She gets it, um, but she was very different. She was like, "I'm going to not only teach you how a different way. I'm, I'm going to teach you a new way of thinking about these dogs." Often it was really it's a, it was a it was like just a new perspective, a new mindset towards what Amazing. we're doing with these shelter dogs. Right. That was the start, and she was always in my ear about it's easy to pop in three hours a week. You know, walk a dog and then think you're so great. Meanwhile, the dog is languishing. Right. And that actually speaks to that self-serving. Yeah. It's so tricky. Yeah, because some people really only do have three hours a week. And I guess it it's so impossible to judge or to really know what's going on in each individual's mind. But that's the thing. It's, oh, I went in, I did my three hours this week and everything's fine and I'm great. And, you know, I'll go eat dog meat uh, at a restaurant right? kind of thing. But, yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's it, I think it's too difficult to judge everybody, so to speak, but that's what you're talking about kind of, right? So she, so often the, you know, I try to, I try to have this in my own teaching is, is you're not, I'm not content with students being mediocre and staying stuck. Like you, you like to think right. of in terms of like be, know where your strengths are, but keep trying to, get better be a bit ambitious don't beat yourself up but be right. ambitious about being a bit better and she was always in my ear about okay you actually want to do this dog thing you got to foster 
So that means living fostered, fostered wow, fo- okay. living yeah. with not only so <laughs> taking one of these dogs and bringing them into my home. Right. Um, and that was the start. Wow. So I took I took the his, the worst dog. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. No, I mean, I, I sort of use that as a... No, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. We sh- and, I, and I do say this, meaning I don't like when people... Um, sorry, I don't... I don't like when I um, pigeonhole or categorize dogs, right. given the environment they're in. Oh, this dog is aggressive. Right. This dog is anxious. This dog is X. This dog is Y. No. Okay. It's often a... You know, it's... It, it's more complex than that. Right. So when I say the the worst dog, that was sort of tongue in cheek. Sure. And that's my old self or myself yeah. now that I'm battling with. Right. And that's super interesting because when it comes to kids or young people, a lot of the time, or even adults, but it's this kid's a bad kid. He's doing this. And it's so much more complex than that. Um, and then kids get pigeonholed and then it's trouble. Um, and they then they start telling stories and believing their own stories and oh my god it's not good right okay so you took the dog home so we took this dog in and his name was snickers <laughs> so remember the peanut allergy right that name couldn't that wasn't gonna work right <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i That's so, so he, funny he was so so this dog was had a hunting background he'd grown up on a farm he was not like a domesticated and he was an animal yeah um and he taught me a ton. He was a total jerk, totally dismissive, only when I would be right emotionally. Um, so if I was disconnected, if I was too analytical, if I was harsh, if I was impatient, if I was angry, if I was in a rush, he's like, sorry, dude, no time for you. Um, and I had to get my SHIT together fairly quickly because at the time I lived on a main floor of a house where the landlord lived upstairs and this guy, this dog was a barker <laughs> and he destroyed crates. He destroyed lots of stuff. Wow. So and, I'm curious yeah. about how you, you noticed that this was super challenging for you, I guess, pers- emotionally, intellectually, etc. Did the dog trainer, this lady, the professor you're talking about, did she help you with, with all that stuff? Like, yeah. So I should. So let me say one okay, very yeah, small yeah, thing yeah. about the network. So so Suha is um, one mentor. There's an there's another mentor called his name is Sam Malatesta, a brilliant. Um, he's a breeder of German shepherds up in the sort of Alliston Beaton area, um, up to 400. Yeah. Absolutely. Like he he and that's who taught Suha. Um, right. and wow. he's taught a number of people and he's absolutely brilliant. He's just given me a ton of help and I'm, I'm always in debt to both Sam and Suha for what they've done, what they have done for me in terms of rearing dogs. Yeah. Um, I don't say training dogs. I say rearing and, and trying to raise dogs properly and ethically. Um, but also for my own life and being able to deal with the struggles of trying to, you know, find a job in an academic job market that's not right. always friendly, just to do, navigate society that's not always um, conducive to mental health or optimal mental health, things like that. So they've been a huge impact or huge influence on my, in my life, and I always want to give them credit for that. Awesome. Um, so she helped me from day one. I mean, we were on the phone. This was in the days when I had a cell phone, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> oh, yeah, I we got to – let's not forget yeah, to talk about that. Um, so <laughs> I, would, I would call her – you know, it sat at Christie Pitts with this, with this, you know, with this dog. Yeah. And we would analyze. And a lot of it wouldn't be about the dog. And actually, we rarely talked about the dog. <laughs> we talked about my 
emotional reactions mm-hmm. and physical reactions mm-hmm. um, to the dog and how I constantly need to get better. And what's so great about Suha is that she's not coddling. She's not – she will say the good things, but she won't – it's not – I assume to you and the dogs, right? Kind yeah, of there's, yeah. No, there's no co- – it's not like, you know, it's – I'm going to help you be as strong and as powerful as possible. Right. Because when you're powerful, right. you're not you're not going to be worried about anything. Things right. don't bug you. Right. You right. can just take the jabs of life and move forward. And yeah, so it's, it's just yeah. yeah, it was just so. I mean, there's a ton more to say, and yeah. all this I can talk about the struggles I've been through. And um, but it's that was the start. It was with this dog, and then he, you know, his name is now Doug. So <laughs> I called him Dog for a while, and there was a sort of a strategy behind that. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so that's that's sort of how I, and then and then I'm down the sort of the the rabbit hole of you now I have three of them, and, right? You know, it's, so it's it just gets a bit more. Is dog crazy. is dog or Doug the uh, alpha dog or whatnot? Or? No, I I'm I am right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah. So um, what does it mean to be you know alpha dominance? These yep. things are not seen positively. I, I, I remember seeing, reading some pieces about like Doug Ford being like an alpha male or, or, right. or Donald Trump being an alpha male like, uh, or, you know, Donald Trump being an alpha male or dominant. I don't see it as that way. And I think in the dog training community, there's been this pushback against this, these terms. Right. Um, By just be, I mean, what would be the replacement term for alpha dog I'd, in a dog pack? It, 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 I mean, the terms properly understood yeah. should equal benevolent or should mean benevolent right, leader, right. not harsh, right. not insecure, right. selfless, right. loving in a true way, not in a self-serving right. way. That's a nice, really nice way to put it. Um, yeah. And that's what I aspire to be. I am right. often not that, but I right. know and I've written it on my, you know, you come to my place and you see my fridge. I got a list of things I need to be and that I work on trying to right. be each right. day. To be that dominant, to be right. that benevolent leader. Um, but most mainstream dog trainers don't talk about dominance anymore. And a theory is um, it's been – the term has been abused um, and misunderstood to to be equated with domineering. Right. And we don't want to be beating dogs. Right. The other theory is – the other perspective is it's actually really, really hard to be dominant, truly dominant. Right. Um, in that benevolent – way so you know you can't ask your teachers to you can't ask your students to be something you're not right so i don't expect any of these trainers to say you got to be dead level and and calm and and non-reactive when when they're not that's interesting can you talk because i remember in the past you said something along the lines of um caesar right the dog whisperer yeah and how obviously he's got his own thing going and he's quite successful at what he does. But you just mentioned about how he touches the dogs, right? Or mm-hmm. he uses physical force to be dominant, I guess. Is that yeah. a fair way to say it? Yeah. And that maybe is contrasted by what you have been taught. So, or is that, yeah, so, is that right? So, 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 yeah, no, 100%. Okay. So what, what Sam and Suha would say is dominance is a mindset. It's not a physical application. And, and the more you have to apply yourself physically right the weaker you truly are in terms of you know what it you know what it means to be a that that dominant personality Mm -hmm. um so whenever you have to roll a puppy if you see a dog and it wants to demean a puppy yeah 
you know, mainstream mainstream view is oh, that's an alpha, that's an alpha dog, that's a dominant male or a dominant female. No, right. that's an insecure dog. Right. Like, what type of person wants to go demean a little kid or a little baby? What does right. it say about that kid? Was it you know the whether the pedophile or the child abuser? These are not confident individuals. Right. These are very these are deeply wounded, struggling individuals. Right. Um, so when you know. Caesar Milan is not entirely he's not all wrong. Yeah. Um right. but he does do things especially early in his in his TV show where he would flip dogs on their back, physically challenge them in order to win physically right. and to right. say dog I'm more physically powerful than you. Um I think that's very dangerous. I think it's not it's not real dominance. I think is asking people to put themselves in situations that are going to put them at risk physically and really you can't win in a, fi- a physical fight with the dog. They are, you know, or especially if you get a really serious dog, yeah. you're going to lose that fight. Right. Don't go down that road. We have other asp- we have right. other qualities right. to us that are are sort of more effective. Um cool. but fighting, physical abuse, physical punishment, pain, no, they're not tickets to long-term relationship building right interesting and so in your in your experience or whatever it's about relationship building and etc maybe you could talk about and let's we'll stop talking about the dogs in a couple minutes and get but then then i'll have nothing else to say yeah to the human (laughs) so um because i i really like the idea of when we see uh so there's a couple of things that you've said in the past so one um, dogs that are friendly with everybody are likely also not secure dogs, potentially yeah. maybe, or when an owner lets their dog be pet all the time, or when an owner, and I see this all the time, complains about their dog or tells their dog to stop, or my dog is so this, or my dog is so that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you touch on a couple of those things maybe? Yeah, sure. So um, again, so... Sam and Sue had taught me everything, but anything I say that it's not right, it's not a reflection of what they've taught me. Yeah, it's my sure. misunderstanding. Yeah, right. Right? So I'm still very much, you know, I've done this for, what, seven years now, but I have so much more to learn. Um, and every day I learn something more and I realize how I was wrong in the past. Sure. So So I'll just put that, throw that out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, the social dog, right? I, I, I struggle with this a lot in society and actually really it it's so relevant in terms of mental health and being optimized in terms of mental health because you know um the the mainstream view of the social dog is they go up to everyone and they're really friendly right um if you think about dog as a pack animal as a predator as territorial no they don't leave the group to go address a stranger let alone to receive affection from right. that stranger right. or to play with that that is not dog behavior Dogs are pack animals who should stay close, right? They stay close to their person, not not out of obsession, but out of yeah. bond and connection. So the more your dog is wanting to say hi to other people, the more the, really what it's saying is is not I want to go say hi to that person, but I want to leave your side. I want to leave your presence. And, you know, this is the amazing thing about dogs is they're brutally honest if we're humble enough to right. see what they're saying. Yeah, because obviously a lot of people would not agree with what they you're saying. They don't like that. No. Yeah, yeah. So I I'm sensing other people not liking that and getting all caught up in the in other people's right. <laughs> baggage. So yeah. the, the where the, where my struggle comes in, I and I I think the it's better off if I talk about myself as opposed sure. to others. But sure. one thing I really struggle with, say on a hike, right? So yeah. I I work on 
my ideal is to have off-leash dogs who don't run off to anyone, yep. don't bug anyone's property, don't run up to kids, right? Um, anything like that, are very respectful of other people's space because that's not their space and right, that's not right, their job, right? right? Yeah, because most... I just think about my own kids a lot of the time when we're out in parks and dogs just come running up and they're freaking terrified. And yep. no doubt, it's scary as a little kid to see a big yep. animal running at you like that. So in, in the in the era of, say, Me Too, um, there's something analogous going on in, in, in the dog world where we're just expected to be okay with intrusions into our public space that we never asked for. Right. So... I ha- I really work on so in the past and I'm sure I'm going to do it in the future and try my best not to but I will get frustrated with people when their dog bounds up to us I'm like can you call excuse me can you call your dog back and then either I get blamed oh is your dog aggressive and I'm like <laughs> right. oh, Jesus okay well hold on a second <laughs> hold on who's right. the like so victim blaming yeah yeah or no no don't worry my dog is friendly okay so now I'm just supposed to exp- you know take Right. Take the physical, accept the physical interaction. Right. Uh, or or it's physical. a boundary violation, yeah, too, in some like, sense. Yeah. I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. I mean, go, like, you know, go play with your dog elsewhere, or, you know, that's. Or so, ask before. Or ask before. Right. right. And you know, I still will say no. Yeah, but that's <laughs> but a huge. At least ask. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing about um, personal interactions in the world, and a huge thing that I think a lot of people are upset about when it comes to. Um, sort of male-female interactions is, and it's totally on point. You know, women are saying, you didn't ask me or like, right? So, or you came into my, yeah, where's the consent? And so, yeah, it's it's a profound thing. And if we're not helping people, and that's actually something we work on a lot in our programs is, how do you know when that boundary, your space is being intruded upon? And then how do you acknowledge your own emotional reaction to that and then use your words to say something? And if you can't say something, then run or right. or whatever it is. But so that's a that's it's fascinating. Yeah, because I didn't ask for your dog to come over here. Um but it seems so normal and accepted kind of, right, that that's okay? So, yeah, it, it is. I'm the, you know, I I sort of like this because of, again, virtue of my birth, February. This is my, like, my, <laughs> my I don't mind being the outsider. Right. I, I think I sometimes, it, there is that emotional toll of wanting to feel part of something. Yeah. So what, what's great about what I have with, say, Sam and Suha and all the other like-minded people is I have that network of, like, right. okay, I'm not crazy. Right. What I'm doing with my dogs is not crazy. When everyone around me takes their dog to a dog park and just lets their dog run free and I don't, I'm like, well, maybe I'm yes, the weird one yes, here. Yes, so, yes. But the the thing, the other thing with – so there's that consent issue, mm-hmm. right? Are, is, are people asking if you know it's okay for have, you know, to have their dog right. in that, in that yep. space? Yep. But the other thing I think is intentions aren't enough. Right. Like you, or good intentions are not enough. So yeah. the dog – you know, maybe maybe the dog is being playful. Okay, let's just entertain that hypothesis for a second. Sure. Well, it, it doesn't matter because I may not be in a position to play. My dog beside me may not want to, you know, be wanting to play. So It's so funny how I got to interrupt you because yeah. you said, oh, is your dog aggressive? <laughs> like that's the whole thing. Like <laughs> people are so poorly oriented to their emotions or their 
understandings of other people's or some sense or boundaries. So it's like, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. It must right. be you and your fault and your dog and you're a bad dog trainer, blah, 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 blah. So that's fascinating. This Sorry is, to, the, yeah. No, no, that's, that's exactly it. And the the common thread between, say, my experience at the Toronto Humane Society now out in, in pub, just public yeah, with yeah. my dogs is this idea that if my intentions are good, therefore the outcomes are good. Right. And, you know, a, I don't mean to be critical of the Toronto Humane Society volunteer. Right. But... They, I think it's it would be it, it's it's good to flag the point that whenever you do something, mm-hmm. um, and this is just as relevant for me as it is for others, um, just because you have good intentions doesn't mean um, right. the results are right. going to be good. Right. Like, let, you know, let's say the Bush administration invaded Iraq because on good intention we want to bring democracy. To right. it. Well, what the hell happened? I don't care if your do- intentions are good, right. and I think I think that's that can lead to a lot of problems. Right. We're not thinking right. about end result we're just thinking about well i'm so good yeah um and i'm doing the right thing therefore everyone else should accept it right. and i think that's a problem right on okay so let's go to um people students at sc- what are you seeing on campus can you also tell yeah. us about your study or is that My, are you not allowed to talk about the study you're doing oh it's 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 very early and i'm, I'm yeah. about to hear word in, in the next few days about whether it's it's moving forward with a, a certain organization so that's it's still up in the air i can talk a bit about it okay talk about you didn't bring the little gadget did you no okay. no i should have <laughs> you should have um so okay. this is very preliminary research yes. let, let me what do you go ahead to, whatever so, you gotta say yeah so my so i have this i have this hunch and i don't know if it's right or not and i'm open to being wrong but this hunch that a main cause of the of, of the mental health crisis that we're seeing and yeah. I, I have a list of stats here cool. that was recently reported um, amongst u of t students or or across actually across canadian campuses i think a main driver of poor suboptimal mental health as well as mental illness yeah. is our increasingly toxic electrical environment our use of wireless technologies our excessive use of screens that tell our body our, our eyes that it's a different time of day so if you right. can't sleep but you're looking at your you know your laptop late at night well that the type of light coming off that screen is telling you it's noon right and so that's clearly sort of accepted right and that the, is now accepted yeah but the, and that's the, a huge problem for me personally to be honest i have a hard time sleeping and because right. i'm staring at my freaking phone at nighttime right. and yeah. yeah so that's i mean it, it's a common problem yeah and these things are addictive i you know Sure. I don't know. A l- well, I mean, that's also proven too now. Right. And except, even there was an article in the New York Times recently about uh, Silicon Valley leaders or CEOs are acknowledging that screen time is bad for kids or something along those lines. I'm yeah. not exactly sure. But so, okay. So, so there's that. There's that hunch. aspect. Yeah. There's that, like the sort of the, the light aspect from the screens but also something deeper that's that a lot of scientists are increasingly saying is operating at the cellular level yeah so if you look at a lot of, if you go around toronto and you look at the top of a lot of apartment buildings yeah. you'll see relatively new cell towers those are cell towers which i think are part of what they call the 4g and coming 5g infrastructure maybe also 3g these are types of sort of cellular network systems yeah um those emit a lot of radiation what they call radio frequency radiation, mm-hmm. um, and these are new. These in are newer society, systems. So to speak? These are emerging systems over the last, say, five, six years. So yeah. Okay. So the the advent of the of, so the ubiquity of wireless technologies is fairly recent. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's having a whole host of health consequences. That, right. that So in 2011, the World Health Organization's yeah. International Association for the Research on Cancer, IARC, um, categorized radiofrequency irradiation as a possible carcinogen. Wow. And that was we, not around before... 2011? It was, but in in far less. Right, okay. Right, so radio right. radio is operating at, is, is wireless. Yeah. Um, and that's been in existence since the, the late 19th century. Right. The issue now is that it's everywhere. So if right. you walk, so one thing, you know, you sent me this question, what do I see on campus? Right. I don't see mental illness or mental health. Right. Because it's hard to see. Yeah. Right. But what I do see is um, a ton of cell phones. <laughs> right. And I see a ton of, and I see cell towers on top of a CAMH building on the U of T campus. And I find that fascinating right. and ironic if the link is actually true. Right. So those are some of the things I'm starting to research. And the focus of the paper um, with a co-author, she's a professor at Trent Magda Havis, who's also brilliant. I'm, I'm so lucky to be surrounded by really smart people, including you, Mike. Ah. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So um, it's, it's about looking, it's looking at Canadian policy on wireless regulations right. um, and wireless safety standards. Because these things do have health consequences, and yeah. I'm concerned about, you know, from the aspect of mental health, what is this? What is, what are these technologies doing to the ways our brains operate at a deep cellular, intracellular level? Because yeah. our brains are electrical units, mm-hmm. and if our electrical environment is inconsistent with our evolution, then they're going to go haywire. Right. And I think that's, I think that's what we're seeing. Wow. It's not the only cause, yeah. But I think it's 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 something worth thinking about, talking about, yeah. Um, and exploring. So that's what I'm trying to do in, the, in, the, in this little research project. But maybe I'm just trying to be different. And maybe that's the, the weird, you know, the psychology I've got. Maybe, yeah. Can uh, you read us some of those stats? Yeah. So there is, um, so a 2017, January 2017 study uh, came out, or it came out in 2017. It was conducted by the National College Health, it was called the National College Health Assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a is study. it Canadian? Yeah, it's yeah. Canadian. Um I think actually maybe there American universities and colleges could have been a part of it, right. but they did an extensive study of all Canadian universities. Um, and let me just report some of the U of T. Sure. So 4,752 so 4, students replied. So that's a fairly wow. significant sample. That just at U of T? Yeah. 20,000 were asked. Wow. Um, about f- almost close to 5,000 responded, which is, a, which is a decent response rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, they ask they ask students a, b- a bunch of questions. Um, one in that is most relevant to our conversation yep. here is in regards to mental health and, and well being. Mm-hmm. So they asked in the past twelve months, have you felt okay? Right. So overwhelmed, eighty eight percent. Exhausted, eighty seven percent. Very sad, seventy three percent. Very lonely, sixty seven percent. Overwhelming anxiety, sixty four percent. Hopeless, sixty two percent. Overwhelming anger, 47%. So depressed, hard to function, 45%. Considered suicide, 12%. Intentionally injured, 8%. Attempted suicide, 2%. So the last one is interesting Hold for on me. One second. I want to see your lovely, I oh, want to see your lovely oh, face good. better. No, there we go. <laughs> That's, okay. so, so the last one, attempted yeah. suicide, yeah. 2%. That's 95 students. Wow. Of, out of uh, the 5,000? Yeah, just out of the 5,000. Are these, since I've been studying research methodologies, uh, is that, uh, what do they call it when you study X amount of people so that you can that uh, That would assume. be considered. So most, like if you look at a census, yeah. they're most like 1,000 like people. Right. 
this, based on how the data was collected, yeah. um, this should be uh, we're fa- we can be fairly confident this is representative of the right. U of T student body. Right. Okay. So wow. 2% of the entire U of T student body, right. according to th- this data, mm-hmm. has attempted suicide. It's, yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, there aren't really words to... Uh, yeah. Right. And yeah. some, of the, some of the other things, and I, and I should add one other thing. I, I, so I, I, I jotted down the comparison with what they call the Canadian peers, so students at other universities across okay. the country. Yeah. The numbers are pretty much the same. So this is not a U of T story. Right. So some people right. would say, well... You know, U of T, it's, it's a very hard place to feel part of the community. It's such a big school. It's a commuter mm-hmm. right. uh, institution. It's a right. research institution right. that maybe doesn't um, do enough for student support, which yeah. is actually not true. But um, that could be one of the uh, questions or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, wow. across university campuses, mm-hmm. the numbers are pretty much the same. It's 2% attempted suicide yeah. for other amongst Canadian peers. For U of T students, so it's it's. Does it the say how many completed suicide? No, no, that's not there. that okay. wasn't there. Right, that's that um, would be interesting to know. Yeah, although we do know our uh, our su- Canadian suicide rates for young people, I think, in the top five of the developed world. Right, I think it's all relatively close, so it doesn't necessarily matter where you rank, which is pretty scary. It's the number one cause of death outside of car accidents for young people in right. the world. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know cause I don't think there's enough information, but these things probably weren't reported in the past. So that might have one cause to the alarming increase in rate. Um, and maybe we're just talking about it more. I mean, who knows, but it, it's scary and maybe, so you're, you know, you're, you're exploring other answers, which I think is great because I think a lot of us would say, and this is rampant in the mental health advocacy world is the government just needs to fund more mental health care, you know, and it's maybe, and in some senses, yes, no doubt there needs to be more access to services, but it's so much more complicated and there's so many layers to what leads somebody to that point. And when someone's in crisis or at that point, it's very difficult to intervene. So I don't know. I think, and I did a, I wrote a blog on this recently, but you know, do you know what the difference is between mental health and mental illness? And why is it so important that we understand that? So the, I would, I argued in the, blog that the reason it's so important to understand that is to effectively use these government dollars or our resources to address those problems. So if we say the government just needs to pump more money into mental health institutions, then are we then supporting, you know, it's health promotion is the word used in this world. So if the money's getting dumped into the into the healthcare system, then that's likely not going to mental health promotion or well-being promotion in the general society. In which case, is that going to change any of the crisis situations that lead to death? I don't know. Probably. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Those are the questions I would ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so, does the government need to fund more mental health care? I don't know either. You know, it's yes, definitely, especially for young people and kids who have to wait forever, which is not okay. 
um, cause they all are more vulnerable, but, um, Anyway, so that was just part of the thing. It's like we need to get clear on what we're actually talking about so then we can actually come up with a solution or a set of solutions that are addressed to the reality. And we get so lost in the just more money or, you know, I don't know. There's just so many things that people say that are simple and easy um, but yet not based in the complexities of the real situation. Um, so yeah, I don't know what that looks like in what, your job or in this kind of stuff. So what, what I what I tend to see is this emphasis on reactive supports. It's like right. too late. Right. It's yeah. like if you think yeah. about like it as a sequence, it's like we're intervening in the middle without thinking more holistically about like what, what what's every step of the way. Yeah. Um, that we could do something to ensure that we're all as healthy as we possibly can be. Right. Um, and I, you know, and I know, Mike, we we've spoken about this. Um, the mental health community, the advocacy community, I think needs to pay more attention to physical environmental factors that prevent us from being, without blaming it, without right, playing a victim, right. yeah, the victim yeah. blaming card, but saying, you know, is it possible to meditate? And truly, um, you know, be mindful right. and compassionate in an environment that's toxic for right. your body. Right. Uh, and, and, I, and maybe, maybe. Yeah. So hold on now. I just want to say something about that quickly because yeah. I, in my classes, I guess, with, uh, I guess I would say my most important teacher in terms of mindfulness and that stuff, we asked her that question one day as a group. Um, and she sort of said, well, you know, the idea is that you can be centered in your environment and that the practice helps us regardless of the environment that we're in. But at the same time, there's a reason that monks live in monasteries and there's a reason they, you know, live in Tibet or they live in these beautiful secluded places where they're not bombarded by all this other nonsense. So... There's a lot to that, and I think I'm guilty of an underlying expectation that people should be able to handle stuff. Or if we just teach them to be able to handle stuff better, then they'd be better. Right. Uh, but that's my own sort of bias or issue with all of this is I need to learn that it's not that simple as well right. along the lines of what we're talking about and that there are all these other factors going on. So well, yeah, the But what's so great about the starts with me message is – it's, it, it starts with you in terms of um, emotional stuff you're working on, but mm -hmm. also starts with you in terms of cleaning up your own space, yeah. your own environment. What's your home like? What's your own water quality like? Right. What's your cell phone use like? Right. All that stuff. So it starts with me could be understood in, in a in, – and I think that in every discussion you and I have had, is yeah. it's consistent with this in a, in, a, in a broad, holistic way to think about everything you can do. Right. Um, to make your environment both outside your body mm -hmm. and inside your body as sort of as optimal Crucial. as it can yeah. be. Uh, okay. I want, cause I want to hear a little bit if you can about sort of your interactions with students or just okay. how, how you think what some of their challenges are, what are some of the ways of helping them or what you see might be possible to help them out or yeah, whether it's, 
they're scheduling too much work and they're not putting their phones down and so they're not sleeping kind of it said in mm-hmm. there about sleep mm-hmm. um is it because they don't have maybe a deeper sense of purpose or meaning in their life or maybe they've been so there's that an amazing book from Jonathan Haidt and I'm Lugiano I think is the other author uh the coddling of the american mind and they would argue that in some ways because we don't let our kids get hurt or at least the past generation has not let their kids get hurt emotionally or physically that when they're confronted with real world problems as they grow up and go to university they're so fragile and to no fault of their own um and then they're just sort of what the hell am i supposed to do this isn't fair and and in some ways i agree it's not fair if you if you've been sort of cared for in that way your whole life and then all of a sudden the world is not like that then you're kind of wondering what the f yeah. uh so yeah i don't know so the my little rant about that but yeah in terms of your interactions with students and this kind of stuff so the 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 coddling stuff i think is um i don't want to speak at an institutional level that there's coddling but there are there are there are things that i think is are happening at the university level that is not conducive to students being prepared for the reality of life which involves rejection and failure and overcoming adversity so there is a tendency towards grade inflation. This is not unique to U of T. This is across the board. Yeah. This is also in high school. I know. I was speaking at a high school to 200 parents where as soon as I was done, the principal had to get on damage control because his school was one of the schools implicated in inflating grades. Did you? I don't know if you heard no. about this, but mm. a whole bunch of schools who were sending uh, engineering students to the University of Waterloo first-year students. So part of the program there is to weed all the kids who can't handle it out in the first year. And supposedly the outcomes, because they've been studying this for quite a while, the outcomes of a certain cohort of kids was so different. It was an anomaly in the research, I guess, Mm. that they they concluded that some schools must be inflating the grades because this is not right kind of thing. Anyway, so you were just saying... So so those students, those students from... So... Of course, the intentions may have been good. Right. The outcome is a disaster for those students. So now they're thinking, okay, maybe I'm a failure. Right. Um, right. Maybe I'm not good enough. Um, they were told there's something they're not, and they were essentially lied to. It's right. not wrong right. to tell right. a student right. they're not very good at something. Yes. It's wrong then to not say, but I'm going to help you. Yes. Or that, that balance you can do to help yourself kind of thing. It's that balance between – it's sort of like the coddling and grade inflation essentially is out of laziness. We're yeah. sort of like, okay, you, you like I'm just going to pass this student on to the next teacher or next professor or next institution. Right. I don't want to deal with it. Right. It's hard. It's hard to deal it with the, hard, yeah. the students who aren't doing as well. Um, you know, that takes a lot of patience. Um, I also sometimes serve as a tutor for students with disabilities and accessibility yeah. accessibility needs mm-hmm. at U of T. Okay, and um, some students are wonderful and and great, but the others, not that they're not wonderful, but they're, they're they ask way more of me right. emotionally, and I really have to dig deep to say what am I made of? Am I am I can I do I have enough mm-hmm. patience, mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. emotional fortitude and strength and power? to properly help this 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 student right. um, who deserves help right yeah, they, yeah, they deserve absolutely. help they do. um so i think the i think coddling is a big part of it you know if i could see a situation where a student was held back in a course that you got to repeat this you were you did not do well that's probably in their favor in the long term yes 
Um, but they so probably think, don't handle that very well. No, sometimes, so, or do they? Or? So what ends up happening in my in my role, which I'm as the undergrad advisor, I'm helping students in that period where they're starting to think about transitioning out of their degree into mm-hmm. the quote unquote real world, whether in a job, an internship, or grad school. Right. Um, the I, I, I I've spoken to a lot of students who have never experienced failure before. And one way is, is it because. They've always, they're just such good achievers kind of thing or maybe they've been, some yes yeah okay but others because the system is scared to to be make true, people fail to be gen, to be honest with yeah, them and say look right. like your writing is not up to par right um or your reading comprehension is not up to par and right. that's okay i'm going to help you right. that's, that's not that's not what's going on right so i the most some of the most fascinating and difficult conversations i've had with students is you know they say like oh you know dave i just got rejected from this and I say, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do they take that? <laughs> you know, not as bad as I. It's like these. You, you've said this to me. These students are actually way stronger. We give right. them credit for. Yes. If you're honest with them and you tell them like it is, you tell them like it is with the right intention, mm-hmm. not to demean them, not to belittle them, but to say, look, this is where you're at, and these are the things you need to do. Right. They actually are. They're sort of say, oh yeah, okay, I can do that, right? right they actually right, right, have right. this this great drive if it's um, brought forward. Um, so what I'm, you know, what I when I have those conversations with students about, okay, you just got rejected. Now think about this moment. You have, you can either let it destroy you, yeah, or say, okay, this is what rejection feels like. Send it for a bit. I don't really want this to happen again. What can I do to make myself a bit better? Right. Those are, I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm student, students are very worried, very worried about rejection, very worried about what other people are going to think of them, uh, in part for good reason, because this is a society in which we live in. Yep. Um, but having those really, you know, meaningful, direct, honest, truthful conversations with students, I think it leaves them slightly better off than they were previous to that cool i'm gonna here we're gonna go over the hour mark here since maybe we'll go over a few minutes it's already been an hour which is hard to believe i'm gonna play this clip from jonathan Haidt, who is a big leader academic person in this world of things um to really expand on some of the stuff which i don't think david and i have the credibility to talk about so i'll play this and then we'll come back hopefully there's no ads on it So my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, was a collection of 10 insights uh, from from sages around the world uh, that were psychological truths. And one of them is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, That gets at the idea, the psychological principle, of anti-fragility. It's a wonderful term. That's actually a clunky, ugly term, but it was made up by Nassim Taleb because we don't have a word for this in the English language, which is that there are some systems that get stronger if they get pushed around, knocked around. Um, So a wine glass is fragile. If you knock it over, it breaks. Nothing good happens. A plastic cup is resilient. If a kid throws it off the table, it doesn't break, but nothing good happens. But there's some things that have to get thrown off the table. There's some systems that have to get pushed around. And uh, Taleb wrote this book, Anti-Fragile, or Anti-Fragility, because things like the banking system had to be tested or it gets fragile and collapses. Bones have to be tested, used, uh, or they get weak. If you were to fly to Mars, your bones would get weak. The immune system, if you protect kids from bacteria, if you keep them in a sterile environment, you're damaging their immune system. The immune system has to face challenges in order to learn. 
turns out kids are anti-fragile. And when we protect children from unpleasantness, from conflicts, from insults, from teasing, from exclusion, we're preventing their social psychology, we're preventing their social abilities, we're preventing their strength from developing. The subtitle of our book is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. By overprotecting our children, we are setting them up to be weak, to be more easily damaged, to be more easily discouraged. The next untruth is always trust your feelings. It may sound wise, it may sound romantic, but wise people around the world have noticed that, that we don't react to the world as it actually is, we react to the constructions, the, the perceptions. Um, Epictetus said, it is not things themselves that disturb us, but our interpretations of things. This is the basis of um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist in the 1960s, noticed that depressed and anxious people have a way of constructing these beliefs that I'm bad, the future is bad, my future, the world is, the world is a bad place, and they're mutually reinforcing. Um, and this is the way the world feels to them. And if you can improve their thinking and break up those beliefs, they're released from the depression. What, we, um, what we've begun seeing on campus is that students are encouraged to, to uh, follow their feelings. If they feel offended by something, then they have been attacked. Um, they're supposed to um, not question those feelings. But part of wisdom is the ability to say, now wait a second, are there other ways to look at this? These are crucial skills for critical thinking. These are crucial skills for mental health. Um, and we need to be teaching young people at all stages to question their first interpretations, look for evidence, and improve the way they interpret the world. The third great untruth, my favorite, uh, the worst and most dangerous and darkest of all, is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. If you think about it for a moment, who are we? What is our species? We evolved in small-scale societies that were locked in struggle with other small-scale societies. Human nature is really, really finely tailored for intergroup conflict, for tribal warfare. This is the way our ancestors lived for a long time. Uh, now that we've transcended it, we're so desperate for it, we've invented team sports, uh, fraternities. Um, we love these sorts of competitions. Our brains are made for it. Now, it can be fun, or it can get dark, and uh, it, it can lead to racism, all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of forms of bigotry. If we're creating multi-ethnic environments on campuses, and in most of our organizations, we're struggling to increase diversity, what you should obviously be doing is turning down the tribal sentiments, is emphasizing what we have in common. But on some college campuses, and in some high schools, we see forms of education, forms of training that teach students to make more and more distinctions, to see more and more binary dimensions between people, where the people who are high are bad, the people who are low are good. The more we encourage people to see the people around them as good versus evil, the harder it's going to be to create an, an inclusive, diverse environment. The bottom line is that there are some very basic, important psychological principles if we're going to raise kids and, and, and educate them and bring them through schools and universities, we should get our institutions in line with these principles. They are children are anti-fragile. Um, um, we are all prone to motivated reasoning and the confirmation bias. And we're all prone to tribalism and black and white thinking. We need to be educating kids so that they do less of this stuff.
if we want to raise a generation of kids who can deal with diversity of all kinds, who can go out into a world that's physically actually quite safe, but yet full of offensive, offensive content, we need to get our educational practices in line with these, these three psychological principles, not with the three great untruths. Well, so that's from BigThink.com. Um, I guess we don't have too much more time, but uh, maybe let's just talk about the second one, which was always trust your feelings. Mm. So I think that's something, again, it's it's so complicated. We don't have enough time. Maybe for uh, your second uh, podcast, we can dig into that more. But maybe I'm curious um, how much that comes up in your interaction with students around their feelings or their perceptions of what's happening to them and how to help. Because we talk about it too. Like all of us, if we are, if we have the ability to be honest with ourselves, um, we all get deceived by our own interpretations of reality um, and how our feelings um, tell us what's right or wrong or et cetera. Um, and that seems to be a ginormous problem. I had an issue with uh, another, for anonymity's sake, adult who said my behavior or they felt X because of what me and somebody else did. And and I kind of, I totally rejected that. I said, no, the way you felt is not my or this other person's responsibility. And, and, and in fact, we actually didn't do anything wrong at all. So when you say that to me, one, it's not true. Two, I don't accept it as real because your feelings are not my responsibility. I am responsible to being, you know, not harmful, which I wasn't in any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, it's just this weird interpretation of, oh, I feel bad about what happened, so I'm going to blame the other person. And because I'm the one who's hurt, then I must be right. And they must be wrong and bad. And anyway, it's kind of a bit separate from maybe how you help students in these situations or what how these situations impact them. But this is a massive global issue right now, a human issue, really. And it manifests everywhere. And at the core, it really is a mental health thing or an emotional thing or a spiritual thing or whatever, um, which I like, really, I like a lot from that video was he was talking about literally polling or surveying the global wisdom traditions in a sense and these ideas that have been around for longer than anything else. Um, okay. Anyway, I'll stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w one thing, so, so he talks, I mean, he's, he doesn't directly touch on this, but I guess the issue of like trigger warnings Yeah. Um, and being very sensitive to when I teach a political science course, I've taught a course on human rights and international politics and, and global security. And he touched on controversial things, humanitarian intervention, war, um, a whole host of sort of civil wars and interstate conflicts that are deeply controversial for many communities here. Right. So being careful at how I how I frame those and talk about them without without putting secondary um, the importance of um, like open conversation. Open conversation that's okay with disagreement and adversity, and right. but right. you know underpinned by respect. Right. So huh, isn't that a freaking 
line for the world right now to to follow yeah so the but the other the other aspect is um so i was teaching a course last year and there's you know i i felt so um this always comes up with with course evaluations i felt like i did x y and z therefore the students should be responding in this way right but when they don't then it's like oh well students are like this there's this blame game that sometimes maybe you know, I'll just say that I knew I fell victim to for a brief amount of time until I sort of like, you know, thought about it for a few days mm-hmm. um, and said, OK, what can I do better as a teacher? I think I think if students and both teachers ask themselves more often, what can I do better? Right. We'd be in a situation where we wouldn't be like we'd be like, other. OK, look, like that was actually not a great thing. Right. That that person did to me. Um, but what I own is my reaction. Right. And I don't own, I can't control what other people do. So when I think about my course evaluations, I think about, okay, you know, maybe the, maybe the student just didn't get a good grade. Right. Okay, that's the easy way out not to take a student seriously. Right. But then you're like, okay, how did I not connect with the student? What, what is it about my teaching style, my, the way I talk, the way I organize lectures, um, the way I put my PowerPoint slides together? Mm-hmm. In what ways was it made inaccessible? So... Cool. What the nice thing about hate's second point is, you know, take out the blame game, uh, at least I, as, as I interpret it, and yeah, um, and just say, what can I do better? Right. I so as the last point, since we're gonna have to come back another day, uh, I'm invited back. Oh, I'm sinking. <laughs> I might not be around still, so you better come back before I sink into the ground. Okay. Um, every time I hear it, my teacher's voice just rings in my head. So you said, I felt my student thought X or something like that, right? So along this whole point, everybody, drill this into your head. There's a huge difference between thinking and feeling. And so a lot of what I think also hate second point was don't always trust your feelings because they're often not necessarily a good reflection of what's happening. But more importantly to what I'm saying, you don't feel students did, etc. You think students interpreted my teaching in this way and that made me feel uncomfortable or sad or bad about my teaching skills or whatever. And then I have these all these negative thoughts that are associated to that. So we re- it's really super duper important to learn the difference between thinking and feeling. And in some ways, it, it's pedantic. I don't know another word. It's picky um, because saying, oh, I felt this or I feel that is part of common parlance. Um, but it's actually profoundly different. Um, thinking and feeling and understanding that is incredibly helpful in your life. So if somebody does something you don't like, you don't say, I feel you're not nice. You say, I think you're not nice and I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel whatever. But separating those two things is really important. Um, Also in how we communicate our requests of other people. If we want them to behave differently or do something differently, then we got to own our own space first so we can communicate better to them. That's my little rant. So thank you very much, David. Um, any lasting words or comments that you want to leave us with? Um, no, but just, Mike, thank you so much for, for this opportunity. Um, whoever listens to this, yeah. any feedback is welcome. Anything is, any things that I said that don't make sense or do, don't agree with, And are you are know. you offering dog training services? So currently? No, there's no business. It's okay. just sort of... Um, but there should be. 
Well, We're yeah, get I mean, I'm, I'm very much someday. a student of my of my teachers, yeah. and um, I'm with them. So if if there is some initiative that happens in the future, I'm you know. Yeah. But right okay. now, it's primarily I'm trying to do my best, and if people need help, I'm happy to either help them directly or connect them with my with the with the, both Sam and Suho, who are brilliant. Amazing. Um, so we didn't um, get to talk about every kid can. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but we will next time okay, for sure. Great. Okay. No, but Mike, Mike, thank you so much. Yeah, the work is pleasure, your yeah. work is great. Um, I love reading your your pod, your your blog posts, and and I'm going to listen to more of your podcasts. Thanks. And just happy to be a part of this. Thank you, sir. My pleasure, doctor, professor. <laughs> All right. No, yeah. Bye, everybody. Oh, and we're going to leave. David uh, wanted a song here, is uh, to leave everybody with. So thank you for listening, and please, yeah, get in touch if, with any questions, comments, whatnot, and maybe if you uh, have a request for a guest, let me know.